This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest is Dr. Kara Jackson, who's an assistant professor in the College of Education at the University of Washington. Kara, thanks for being here. Thank you. We're going to be talking about Kara's article that was recently published in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education in uh, Volume 44, Issue 4. And the article is Exploring Relationships Between Setting Up Complex Tasks and Opportunities to Learn in Concluding Whole Class Discussions in Middle Grades Mathematics Instruction. Before we get to that article, though, Kara, I wanted to ask you um, about your graduate school experience and your dissertation. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I um, was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, and I was in a program called Education, Culture, and Society, which is essentially foundations of education, and I focused primarily in anthropology of education, but I had also I'd been a math major as an undergrad and had been teaching high school mathematics, and and so I kept finding myself in math education context. So my dissertation mm-hmm. was sort of at an intersection of anthropology of education and math education. So oh. my principal advisor was Janine Remillard in math education, and then I also worked closely with Stanton Wortham, who's a linguistic anthropologist of education. So the focus of my dissertation, it... It ended up being um, an ethnographic study of students or youth who at the time were nine and then turned 10 years old in the midst of the study, mm-hmm. um, and their families engaging in mathematical activity in and across settings, particularly the home, their schools, and their neighborhood. Um, and one thing that happened was in the midst of the study, they switched from a neighborhood public school to a charter school. So I ended up focusing a lot on the relationship between, or the transitions that they were making between that neighborhood public school, the charter school, what was expected mathematically and in particular how the youth were being positioned. And so probably the some of the takeaways, I guess, would be um, I was focusing a lot on what appeared to be a pretty tight coupling between how mathematics was being constructed in the new charter school classroom and how the youth were being positioned, the assumptions that were made about who these youth were that were coming to these classrooms. Hmm. And that's interesting, too, for you to have that mixed background. Usually when I think of somebody coming from the kind of ethnography side of things, I don't also think of them as having like a math major or math background before that. So you really kind of bring multiple perspectives to your work. Yeah, I've tried. um, I enjoy doing that. So I'm I'm hoping to continue to kind of live in that space Mm -hmm. as I move forward. Right. Um, So the article in JRME, um, you're looking in middle grades mathematics classrooms, Mm -hmm. and particularly you're looking at complex tasks and exploring relationships between different phases of the task enactment. So you have the setting up of the task, but later you have the concluding discussion that are, you know, commonly held. So I was wondering if you could let us know kind of what it was that led you to be interested in that area of research. Yeah, for sure. So I would say... Throughout, I've been really interested in, even from my own teaching, one thing I was really interested in is how could I, as a teacher, learn better how to support more and more students to participate in rigorous mathematical activity Mm -hmm. Um, with, I think now I have more language around that that's come from reading and, you know, being in conversation with lots of people, but trying to really, I think in Deborah Ball's terms, maybe take seriously the idea that teaching for that kind of understanding is not natural activity, so what are certain forms of practice one can learn to do to support more and more students to have um, opportunities to participate in rigorous activity. And so 
I was part of a study, and my co-authors on this paper are Annie Garrison, who just finished um, her doctorate in math education at Vanderbilt University and is now an assistant professor of math ed at SMU in Dallas, Texas. Um, Joni Wilson, who's uh, finishing her doctoral studies in math education at Vanderbilt right now. Lindsay Gibbons, who also was a doctoral student there at Vanderbilt and is now um, a postdoc here at the University of Washington. And Emily Shahan, who was a professor of the practice in math at, at Vanderbilt and is also now here at the University of Washington. But I guess the background of this study was myself, Annie, Joni, and Lindsay we're all taking part in a study at Vanderbilt um, that has continued till today, but at that time it was phase one of the study, and it was a study that was trying to understand how do you support instructional improvement at the scale of large urban districts in middle grades mathematics. And there were, we were working with four districts, and three of the four had adopted the Connected Mathematics Project 2 curriculum, mm -hmm. which sets up lessons in terms of a launch, explore, and summarize, and the lessons mm -hmm. are organized around solving complex tasks. And mm -hmm. We were particularly interested in what were teachers doing in classrooms where it appeared that more students than you would typically see were actually participating in that rigorous activity. And so we started by just looking at sets of videos from year one that were collected in the study to see what do we notice what do, when we see a lot of students really actively making sense of mathematics, having rich discussions, what's going on in those classrooms that might not be happening in other ones. And I think it actually was Annie Garrison who said, look, check out this one, look at what just happened at the beginning of this lesson. And as we started looking more, we also started to develop this sense that we could almost predict what would happen just based on what was happening in the first five to seven minutes of the classroom. Now, that uh -huh. wasn't, that's purely anecdotal, but right. in terms of you could watch and you could think like, what are the norms that have been set up in here? What sorts of activity are happening? And that, you know, that really was where we started to zero in on, well, what's happening as this task gets set up in classrooms. So you were kind of collectively getting this feeling that it was important what was happening in the setup phase. And so then it was a matter of, okay, can we kind of analyze this and, and sort of put our finger on that feeling that we're having about... Exactly. Like, could we start to characterize what's happening in those phases that seem to be... Um, regular or that there seem to be patterns and that sort of activity across lessons where it appears that more students are being supported. And again, kind of tying back, thinking about if we could do that, then it might be that we could start to specify more of what's important in the beginning of a class, such that then you could imagine supporting other people to learn how to do that. So kind of going back to the idea that teaching for these kinds of understandings isn't natural, but it is learnable. So what are the sorts of things we need to learn to be able to do those things? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the broader study that this was a part of. So could you say a little bit more about the data that you were drawing from and maybe the data that particularly informed this article? Yeah, so in that larger study, we collect a variety of data that tries to capture the extent to which teachers are developing the intended forms of practice and the relationship between what's happening in their schooling context that is supporting them or not supporting them to develop those intended forms of practice. So we collect interviews around their relationship with their principals, the relationship with coaches, their social networks. We also have assessments of their mathematical knowledge for teaching and uh, a host of other things. But for this study itself, we only focused on the video recordings of them teaching. And so for each year of the study, in around January or February, we video record two consecutive lessons for each of 120 teachers that kind of spanned the four districts that we were working in. Hmm. And the, that was the primary source of data. So in this particular study, we actually didn't use the other data we had. So in total, about 240 observations per year. And 
One thing I should say is sometimes, though, these lessons, CMP2 lessons in particular, span more than one day. So you might launch the task, the kids explore it, and then the next day the teacher comes back in order to frustrate the whole class discussion. So not all of those lessons were isolated. There were some that would span over the two days. Okay. And then what was a framework that you brought to the data to kind of make sense of those lessons that you're seeing? I know from your title and then from looking at the article, clearly the Stein framework, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how you... Um, actually structured the data that you were looking at? Yeah, so I should say when the this study, the larger study, which we refer to in-house as the MIST study, Middle School Mathematics and the Institutional Setting of Teaching, when that study started, the instrument called the Instructional Quality Assessment, the IQA, which was developed um, by Melissa Boston, who's at, I think she's Associate Professor of Math Education now at uh, Duquesne University, she had led the development of that instrument and we had chosen that instrument as the one that would give us an assessment of the quality of instruction um, for each year of the study. And so the IQA is closely related to, it comes out of the mathematical task framework, the work that Rita Keystein and others were involved in. So that was sort of our starting framework because that we already had these lessons that had already been coded in previous summers. So mm-hmm. for this particular study, I think we looked at years three and four of the data that had been collected. And... So we already had measures of, for example, the potential of the task, meaning how cognitively demanding was the task as it was written, as it was implemented, the quality of the discussion, and then there were some finer-grained measures of the quality of discussion that, um, again, were laid out in this IQA framework. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things we felt we needed to do as we we looked carefully at that Mary, the Mary Kay Steinman colleagues framework, um, as well as the IQA, and what we noticed was there wasn't really much that was describing what was happening in the setup. So just one tiny example is within that framework, you think about the potential of the task as it's written, and then you think about as it's implemented. And there wasn't really distinguishing, though, you know, it gets implemented in how it gets introduced, and then it gets implemented in how it's you know, how teachers and students are interacting around it during the explore phase as well as what's happening in the discussion. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of noticed in there this seemed to be a place to dig in to think more carefully about what was happening in the setup that we might be able to elaborate a bit on the mathematical task framework. And then in concert, we ended up developing a pair of rubrics to complement the IQA that, again, focused on what was happening in the setup. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Kara Jackson from the University of Washington about her recent article in Jeremy, exploring relationships between setting up complex tasks and opportunities to learn in concluding whole class discussions in middle grades mathematics instruction. So you mentioned, though, the kind of refinement that you did to the IQA and those observations and looking at the setup phase. Um, and so now I'm curious, you know, what, what did those allow you to see in the setup phase? What were some of the findings that you had uh, in that part of the implementation? Yeah, so what we zeroed in on with the setup, um, and again, this was in relationship to what had been written before. So people like Joe Bowler had talked about the importance of communicating clear expectations in the setup, as had Mary Kustein and colleagues and so forth. And so we were interested in this work and what else was happening besides communicating clear expectations and expectations that everyone will participate in solving the task. And so we ended up zooming in on what we called four key aspects. And the first was that if it had what we called a problem-solving scenario, meaning the mathematics was in the context of some sort of scenario, whether it be real-world-based or more fictitious, that there was opportunities for the key, what we called contextual features of that scenario, to be actually explicitly discussed in the setup. So, And this, I think, fits with a lot of other research that has suggested that oftentimes 
if you are working within one of these what we call problem-solving scenario, that for some students, what's being discussed contextually might be familiar, and for others, it might not. So that seemed to fit with prior research. But then the second piece that we saw that seemed really important that we hadn't seen discussed as much before was that whatever the key mathematical ideas or the relationships or the key quantities that were being um, that were going to then be the object of you know what was being mathematized in the task, that those as they were represented in the task statement were also explicitly discussed. So in the paper, we give an example of this one task, dollars for dancing, where kids are earning a certain amount of money for every hour that they dance, and there we think is a key mathematical idea that students needed to be able to imagine that they were earning this particular amount of money and that that particular amount of money for every hour was accumulating over time. And the accumulation over time was what was going to then be represented in a variety of ways and they're going to be making sense of that. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't have that image, it was going to be really hard, we predicted, for them to then engage in more conceptually around the mathematics. And But a, a third key aspect that uh, we identified was it wasn't just that there was discussion about the key contextual features or discussion of these key mathematical ideas or quantities. It was a, it was a particular kind of discussion of those two Things. So what we noticed was it seemed really important that there was some sort of common language that was being developed across students to describe both those key contextual features if they applied, as well as the mathematical ideas and relationships or any other vocabulary that could be confusing but was really central to making sense of the mathematics. And so again, in the article, we kind of detail how you might develop that common language. And so we saw teachers where it seemed to be particularly skillful that they were using things like the top moves that... Um, Chapin and O'Connor and others have written about where you're getting students to um, revoice one another's contributions, to agree or disagree, to indicate whether or not they're understanding and developing a similar sense of the ideas. And then the fourth piece was, and this is very, very tricky, is that the cognitive demand of the task as it was written was maintained. So mm -hmm. you could imagine doing all of this work and also suggesting to students how to solve the problem. Right. And so we would see that as well. So we wanted to have some we thought it was important in this framework to keep a check on that as well. That, And we kind of approached this pretty crudely, that there wasn't a solution that was being suggested to, as to how to solve the problem. Okay. So, yeah, I left it kind of open to the students to actually themselves have to work out how they're going to approach it, how they're going to try to exactly. get towards the solution. Yeah. yeah. And that was, um, I think, as we've seen in the videos, that's an incredibly difficult tension to manage. Right, because some you of the, the first points that you were mentioning about trying to identify and kind of reveal the important mathematical ideas, one way you might reveal those is to sort of tell the first few steps that you might do. Exactly. Um, but to reveal the important idea without actually giving away the steps that need to be taken to solve. Right. right. And I think we discussed this some in, in the article, but what we were noticing was it seemed that if that common language was developed without having suggested a solution to the particular problem, what it then was allowing students to do was to have um, kind of more equal footing within the explore phase to discuss and think about ideas. And then I guess the latter half of the article kind of gets into, and why would that then matter in the discussion? Mm -hmm. And so one right. of our conjectures was that would matter because as a teacher was orchestrating a discussion of student solutions, and you were trying to make sense of them conceptually, you could fall back on that imagery to help you make sense of both what was being represented, but also to evaluate, for example, the reasonableness of a solution and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure the listeners, and I know myself, I'm curious about how that conjecture played out. 
because um, this is right in sort of my area of research um, where I'm really interested in how those whole class concluding discussions take place. Um, so what did you see when you then followed it through to the later part of the, the implementation? So the way, I should say a little bit about the way we did analyze that, I think. Okay. Just to say kind of what, I, what I'm what i able to say and what I'm not. So what we ended up doing, and really Annie Garrison, my co-author, um, she really led this portion of it, was conducting a quantitative analysis then of the relationship between assessment of what was happening in the setup according to those four um, aspects that we spoke about earlier Mm -hmm. and existing measures of the quality of the whole class discussion. So the existing measures we had were something called academic rigor of the discussion from, again, from Melissa Boston's IQA, um, which just, it really kind of gets at to what extent are people providing any evidence for their ideas. It's a pretty global measure. And then two finer grain measures, one which was called student linking, which is the extent to which students are connecting their ideas to one another, and student providing, which is the extent to which students are, um, when they're providing an explanation, is it conceptual Mm -hmm. um, or is it more calculational? And so those were the measures we stuck with based from the IQA, um, and we found some interesting relationships. One is that just focusing on um, discussion of the key mathematical ideas and relationships. So, for example, back to the dollars for dancing test, the idea of money accumulating over time, that would be one of those. That when we saw that there was common language developed to describe the key mathematical ideas and relationships, we also saw that there tended to be more evidence of students providing conceptual explanations in the whole class discussion and of students uh, linking their ideas to one another. Those same relationships held also for contextual features. So when there was work in the setup around developing common language to describe key contextual features, we saw that also play out with students providing more, again, more conceptual explanations in the whole class discussion as well as linking um, their ideas to one another. What was interesting, though, is that the extent to which we actually had evidence of that happening was pretty minimal. So in general, in the setups, teachers tended much more to focus on the mathematical ideas and relationships than the contextual features when there were problem-solving scenarios. There was very, very little attention to context in the setup. Yeah, those are uh, really interesting findings. I'm also curious, um, you mentioned in the setup about you know the important relationship with cognitive demand and how that can be challenging to balance in the setup phase. Um, how did you see that playing out through the whole class concluding discussion? Yeah, so this also, I think these are important findings around this. We were finding that in the majority of the lessons, actually, the cognitive demand of the task was lowered within the setup, which suggests, I think, big implications for potential teacher education work and in-service teacher education work. Like, how is it that you support people to maintain the cognitive demand Mm -hmm. um, during the setup? One interesting finding, though, was because we were curious about... um, if you could do all this work in the setup and you could help you support to common language around mathematical ideas and relationships and contextual features, but would that also then go hand in hand with decreasing the cognitive demand? And we found that actually that wasn't the case, that those people who were developing such common language in the setup also seemed to be more skilled at maintaining the cognitive demand, mm-hmm. which I think could suggest some implication about teachers who are thinking that um, deliberately about setting up a particular task, perhaps the goals they have for their students in mind, maybe it's related to their mathematical knowledge for teaching and so forth. So that we thought was a really interesting finding that 
it didn't mean that if you developed this common language, you were also decreasing the cognitive demand. In fact, we found something that was to the contrary of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is just kind of my own thoughts spurring off of what you were saying about the mathematical knowledge for teaching. It also, to me, sounds like a lot of these, um, the things that you're seeing with the teachers is almost related to a knowledge of discourse or a knowledge of facilitating a productive discussion. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm wondering if that's kind of still within the same sort of broad category of mathematical knowledge for teaching or if that's actually a different kind of knowledge or a different kind of skill. Yeah, it seems, I mean, my thought on that is that they're related because, for example, if you want to press on students' ideas, um, particularly in a setup, if you want to press them to articulate and develop some common ideas about what's happening in this particular scenario, but you don't want to go so far as to suggest a solution, mm-hmm. that it's kind of like they're intersecting. Like, you have to know what to press on, when to press on, and that's got to be related to your goals for students' learning mm-hmm. and what you know are important mathematical ideas, mm-hmm. what can be, what's okay to discuss up front because we should all know this this already, mm-hmm. and what do we not want to press too much on because that's the new learning that's going to be yeah. developed through the lesson. So I see those as distinct but very much related, particularly right. in how you press when you press. Yeah, and the mathematical knowledge for teaching seems like it would come into play with knowing as a teacher, if I press on this, what's the payoff going to be? Or, you know, what might it lead students to? That's really going to be tied up with their mathematical knowledge for teaching. But the skill and and the finesse in doing that is, you know, I think a separate but related thing, like you said. Yeah. And definitely one of the things we tried to be really careful about in the article was to suggest that although we were finding these relationships, we we weren't suggesting that one was necessarily influencing the other. That, like, mm-hmm. for example, if you did the setup this way, then your whole class discussion would be this kind of discussion. Right. Um, because we also think, essentially what we're suggesting is it's important to orchestrate discussion both in the setup and at the conclusion of the lesson. And that the skill, that finesse you're talking about, probably cuts across. So if you're mm-hmm. able to do it in one setting, you're probably, you know, just... The skill in being able to do that probably was evident in the setups we watched as well as in the whole class discussion. Mm-hmm. So if someone's really good at orchestrating a whole class discussion, you probably would see it in both phases. Right. So that's also, you know, it's sort of something we'd like to explore more about, which is are there different sorts of sets of skills in terms of thinking about it as you're setting up a task versus concluding a task? Or if you can do one really well, do you just automatically do the other one really well as you need mm-hmm. to? Right. Yeah. Try to separate those issues out. Yeah. But you do a nice job in the article of, you know, position this as an exploration and you, you describe the things that you're seeing without sort of overextending your claims. So I think you did a nice job writing that up. I'm speaking with Kara Jackson about her recent article in Jeremy. Uh, I want, I wondered, Kara, if you could sort of synthesize for us a sort of key takeaway point or a, a sort of bigger idea that you want to leave people from this article. Mm-hmm. One bigger idea I think we were hoping to leave is that if more students are to be able to participate in solving complex tasks, um, that there probably is attention that needs to take place in terms of a teacher thinking and planning carefully for how it is you're setting up that particular task. I don't think we didn't want to leave it as like this is a prescription of how to do it every time, that of course these things change and what you know about your students of the particular task, the time of year, and so forth, but that it is a phase that de- that really deserves some intentional thought, knowing that when we don't intentionally plan for that setup, that often a lot of things kind of unfold over the course of the lesson that probably could have been prevented had we 
you know, thought a little bit more carefully about the setup. So that's one, Mm -hmm. I think, on a practice level. And then on a research level, it struck us that math education research, it feels to me, has made a ton of progress, particularly elementary and middle grades um, levels, in trying to specify what people have referred to as core practices or high leverage practices or those things that when they're done well, students seem to learn mathematics worth understanding. And one of the questions I have is, how much more do we need to continue to specify? Because it just, on the one hand, I think you could argue, we know a lot, now we need to figure out how to support other people to do it. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, in looking at this, it it felt as if we looked in these classrooms, there were other things too that we were seeing that we didn't document in this particular paper that might be worth unpacking if we think about them in a framework of how would you support other people to come to learn to do these things so that more people can participate in more rigorous mathematical activity. Always more work to be done, isn't there? Yeah. (laughs) Kara, thanks so much for talking about your work. Um, Before I let you go, I have uh, a final question that's um, care of my colleague Aaron Brackenecki from Michigan State University, but it's a question I ask all the guests. If you weren't in math education, what else could you see yourself doing with your life? Okay, so I have I have a few thoughts. Uh-huh. <laughs> One is, I mean, if I wasn't in this particular position, I'd also be very, very happy um, teaching and teaching classroom mathematics. I oftentimes think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyhow, but something completely different from that. Um, a one thing I'd really love to do is to do, I guess, it's the, like more journalistic work around education. Hmm. So I am. Um, for something like NPR, <laughs> I really uh-huh. have in my, on my heart, I've always been really interested in how is it that you portray education and all the complexities of education mm-hmm. to a public such that you can kind of maintain the complexity, but also help people start to think a little bit more deeply about what's happening in both schooling and in out-of-school context mm-hmm. that support or don't support students to really develop you know, significant understanding, so not, not only of mathematics, but of all sorts of things in the world. So that is one mm-hmm. one thought that maybe, maybe I'll pursue it someday. Yeah, I, I would imagine from doing your dissertation in that charter school setting that there were probably several pieces you could imagine producing from that. Absolutely. Um, Kara, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us about your work. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.